Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, conservative political commentator Bill Crystal. He's had a varied and distinguished career, which includes serving as professor at Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania and serving in the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. He's here to talk about the state of American politics right now, October 2020, and where we go from here. Turns out he also has pretty good taste in music. Bill Crystal, great to have you, and I welcome you. Great to be with you. Okay, so we're talking about the fast pace, the quick-changing nature. Those are understatements uh, uh, of velocity that's unheard of. So it's funny because I was thinking, what what do I want to talk about with you? And it almost, in a way, is weirdly doesn't even matter because things change so quickly that the expiration date is like instant for <laughs> anything you're about to say. But what <laughs> one thing that's that's come up just this morning, uh, Thursday morning, the morning after the debate, is uh, is that Trump is now saying he won't do a virtual debate with Biden. Is this good? Is this bad? Who does it help? And will he stick with it for more than, you know, six hours? Who knows, right? I'd say on the big picture point you make, I mean, it's the most volatile, insane, kind of crazy, wacky time. And it has been for a long time, right? If you had said a year ago, we're going to have an impeachment, we're going to have a pandemic, we're going to have a recession, we're going to have Biden's going to, who was thought to be, you know, maybe not the most likely nominee in the sense that old and tired and he's going to win and win pretty easily and uh i mean all these things and then of course the last month woodward book and uh, the atlantic article on trump and the troops and then the first debate and trump's performance there and then he gets the coronavirus what's kind of amazing is that's a genuine I mean, it's not like that's not real that, that is genuine turmoil and and uh, uh dislocations of all kind but under the surface uh, the race has stayed amazingly constant, you know, and, and it does sort of suggest that the voters, some chunk of them are okay with Trump, and that chunk can go down to 38, it can go up to 43 or 44, 45, uh, 50%-ish have always been unhappy about the Trump presidency, and that can go up to the, it can go down to again 46, it can go up to 54, 55, and that's been amazingly stable. I mean, actually, it's the, from a political science point of view, it's the most stable presidential race uh, uh, in modern times. Uh, really kind of, so you, it's a bizarre moment where you have this kind of underlying stability in the electorate combined with total, you know, volatility in the, on the pandemic, obviously, on the economy, uh, impeachment, and, and, and Trump's own behavior. I don't know quite what it would really take a good novelist to do justice to this. I'm not sure the social scientists can can quite uh, capture this. The, the the what that's what makes this year even weirder, don't you think? I think if we had a year in which, you know, like '68, where it was obviously volatile and huge events were happening and things were reversing course, 
But, you know, Johnson drops out of the race and George Wallace finds as a third party candidate. And, and, you know, so stuff that happened politically in 68 mirrored the the volatility and disruptiveness of what was happening in the country as a whole. What's sort of weird about this year is that the politics at the end of the day in, in a year and a half ago, or two years ago, Ron Brownstein said to me, the, the political columnist, a uh, uh, very shrewd political analyst for the, uh, uh, I guess for Atlantic now, he's been with the LA Times in the past. Ron said to me, you know what? It looks to me, most people probably don't want to elect Trump. So probably loses, you can't tell, but you know, loses not a, not a huge landslide, but not a super close race. And Democratic ticket, you know, just looking at the numbers, kind of looks like it's going to be Biden-Harris. So here we are two years later, it's Biden-Harris, Trump-Pence. He's losing by, Trump's losing by eight, nine points. So after uh, after two years of total insanity, we're sort of where we were supposed to be. Okay, so you, you've covered a lot of points. One thing I wonder about, the, the underlying stability, do you think it's because people had their minds made up or just because it's so much that they, they've tuned everything out and, and all of the insanity, the volatility that's happening isn't even making its way into the psyche? Yeah, that's a good, I mean, it's a good way of asking the question or putting the point. I'd say two things. I mean, we're in a hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized environment. So 40% of the country thinks one thing and 45% thinks another the the and they just are dug in and everything they see they see through a totally different lens these two groups and they have different news sources and they talk to each they talk within their echo chambers and not beyond i suppose a you know someone who studied this kind of thing kind of mass psychology uh, would say you know these these groups are just going to stick where they are and, and you can have all the volatility you want so i think that's part of it part of it is just uh, uh, you know an incumbent president gets judged on his record and uh, so that the campaign stuff doesn't matter as much. And that, I think, is we know from a lot of different, a lot of past races. The best single predictor of an incumbent president's vote in a re-election is his job approval. And that makes sense. I mean, if you're a voter, you'll judge someone on what he's done in four years in office, not on, gee, did he have a good debate last night or did he seem a little off, you know. So in that respect, uh, Trump's job approval is mirroring actually his vote and uh, his they, their hopes had been to get the job approval up to the mid high 40s maybe 50 and uh, i think the pandemic and the mis- total mismanagement of that has pretty much uh, uh, knocked that out the only other thing you can do if you're an incumbent president is disqualify your challenger and just convince people it is just too risky to go for that other guy in that respect the democrats nominating biden was a very good thing for the democrats and though, but but they're they're calling him a communist anyway. I mean, <laughs> totally no. And, and and Kamala Harris is a is a is a Marxist. And what did Trump say this morning? So when he did this insane, and we're talking yeah, Thursday morning, uh, what at ten? You have, to, you have to almost put the time on it now. The time that, that, that's that's it, why right? I said because, to you, I, that, that's it, why I said at the beginning. I, I said beware of anything you say because it's it's already old news. But you're talking about the the Trump phone call to Fox News this morning. Yeah, I, I listened to some snippets of it online. I mean, he sounds just deranged. And at the end of it, uh, the host is trying to kind of end it. It's time for a commercial break, I suppose. And she thinks maybe Trump said enough. And Trump just goes on a rant about Hillary Clinton and the 33,000 emails. I mean, you really do. (laughs) I mean, you know, and it's funny. And I left, too. And it's worth mocking. And I certainly do some of that uh, in what I write and what I say and on Twitter. But it is worrisome, honestly. He's president of the United States. He's got another, what, three and a half months, if I've got the, well, is that right? October, November, December. Yeah, almost four months, right? Until January 20th. And so, um, well, three and a half, I guess. I can't, my math's not too good. And, um, 
that's, you know, there's a lot of pres- damage a president can do, even if he loses his reelection bid uh, after November 3rd. And to say nothing of the next four weeks as he's desperate and cornered and trying to get parts of the federal government to do things to help him. Sort of the Ukraine, you know, scandal was kind of a tiny little taste of what that could look like. And he now has compliant people at top levels of the Justice Department and the intelligence community who will, I think, I would say bend the rules, but I'll almost just say break the laws to do what they can to help him. So that's a that's a, not a good combination. And I do worry uh, about the country over these next few months. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was the media obsession with him, the, the constant feeding, and it runs all the way from MSNBC to Breitbart and whatever's right of that and whatever's left of MSNBC and, and the, the spectacle of him coming home to the White House from Walter Reed with the helicopter and, and the lights and the sunset. And, it, you know, it was wall-to-wall uh, cable news, every network, everybody obsessing over this ridiculous pageant, fake pageant. Uh, I, I think Tim Miller said to remind him of, 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 of Pinochet or something. I mean, just ridiculous. But there they are again, that all the networks playing it like it's like it's a news story and, and forcing people to see it. And it's just like, what the hell have have we learned nothing from the run up to the 2016 election when all of his rallies were big news stories? Let's spend 45 minutes on MSNBC showing a Trump rally. I mean, it, I, I, part of the time I, I agree with what you just said and sort of have the same, oh, my God, are we really going to watch them you know, do this? On the other hand, he is the president of the United States. So whatever one could say about 2015, 16, and there I do think the media helped him in ways uh, unintended, mostly some intended because he was good for ratings and so forth. Now it is a little different. People really do need to see need to see, but are entitled to see, I guess, how the president is behaving, what the president is doing, what he's saying. So it's a little hard to tell the networks. The President of the United States is about to discharge himself from a hospital and fly back to the White House and uh, you know do whatever he does from the balcony and make a videotape remark. And we're just going to carry, you know, normal programming. I, so I, I guess I, you know, on the one hand, one hates to sort of have our whole public life taken over by the spectacle, but we asked for it. We made him president. We didn't constrain him as president. We, I mean. People who might have, mostly the Republican Party, uh, they failed to not only just fail to impeach him, but have excused everything. And that, for me, that's just that's the story of the Trump years. You could elect an oddball president. It can happen in a country. He was a multi-candidate primary. Then you get a general election. You have a flawed opposing candidate. People want change. He gets lucky with Comey and stuff, and he wins. That that I think is, you know, you, you hope it doesn't happen too often, but it happens in a in a big modern mass democracy. What you doesn't happen usually or shouldn't happen is the total, not just accommodation, but capitulation to that person once he's in office by his political party, by the elected representatives of his party in Congress, who after all are elected by the, the voters, not by, they're not selected by Trump. The total capitulation, the, the, the rooting out of the people who were in the cabinet and in senior positions who had some loyalty to institutions and to constraining the president the capitulation of conservative elites, and I, I say this as someone, I guess, who would would have fallen into this category, but uh, of opinion journalists, of donors, of business types, just willing to go along with anything because they think they're getting something good and 
economic policy or tax cuts or the court or whatever. That I think is what, that's what I didn't really expect. I've got to say I was anti-Trump from the beginning, but, and I thought it would be bad, but that has made it so much worse. I mean, do this thought experiment, Uh, you know, Trump's president, he's doing all the wacky stuff he's doing, but routinely 10, 20, 30 Republican senators oppose him on different pieces of legislation. Routinely, the Wall Street Journal editorial page says, no, we can't accept this. We should all rally against this. That would be a very different donor, say, you know, big shot types who talk to him and his cabinet members say, no, 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 this, I'm going to cut off my support if he does this. I mean, that would be a different situation. And the failure of people to stand up to him, pe- people on his own side, if you, if, you, if you will, of the fence, of the aisle, that for me has been, that's what's allowed it to get as bad as it is. Heidi Heidkamp was on this podcast a few episodes ago, and, and, and she talked about uh, the fact that you have to risk your political life for what you believe in. It sounds like a nice uh, statement. It's, it's, it's very um, warm and optimistic and uh, idealistic sounding. Uh, I, I mean, she, I think, did to some degree that could maybe partially explain why, why she lost re-election, but... Uh, is it that simple? I mean, it, it, the the easy answer is, yeah, these people could have stood up to him and they would have gotten primary and they would have lost. So I think that's a large part of it. He he did a very good job of Trump of, of, of capturing the base, convincing the base that any opposition to him was uh, disloyalty and disloyalty was virtual treason. And But look, some of these senators, I mean, not to be little minded, some of these people weren't running for election. Some of them weren't on the ballot for another six years uh, until 2022. Some of them certainly other, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page wasn't going away, even if it opposed Trump more often. Would they have taken grief? Would they have lost some readers? We, we lost the Weekly Standard, got closed down in large part because by our owner, in large part because we were anti-Trump. So I, I believe me, I, I, I understand the pressures. I think I understand the pressures and especially on elected officials. I give the elected officials, I don't give them much of a break, honestly, but I give them a little bit of a break in the sense that they are elected and face, you know, such pressure from constituents. But, but you know, a fair number of them have retired. Did they stand up? I mean, that's what's also pathetic. And if some of them are ex-officials, where the hell are they? Where is Paul Ryan? Does Paul Ryan, I mean, does he not have the courage, if I could just be really honest here, to stand up and say Joe Biden should be president of the United States for the next four years, even though I disagree with him on a lot, not Donald Trump? I guess he doesn't. Or maybe he doesn't believe it. Maybe he thinks, you know what, it's worth having what? I guess more, more, you know, different economic policies, not having a taxes on the wealthy go up 4% or some corporate rate go from 21 to 28%. It's worth, it's worth having Trump as president for four more years with the total craziness and irresponsibility he's now demonstrating. And think of what the next four years would be like. Do those people really believe that? Or are they just, well, no, they don't believe that. But they keep their head down. They want to be able to be players in the Republican Party afterwards. There's going to be a lot of Trump support, a lot of uh, hostility to anyone who wasn't on board the Trump train, obviously. And so I guess they're all making that calculation. But I, I just, again, I'm, I'm sort of amazed by how cowardly and irresponsible it is. And then, as, as I was saying, it's one thing for the elected officials, but what about the former electeds? What about the opinion journalists? What about the billion? What's the point of being a multimillionaire or billionaire if you can't say what you want? Well, maybe you're what you believe. Well, maybe you're, you know, you, you'll do better in your business if you're on good terms with the Trump administration. I, I, I take that point. Uh, but will you really be be in such terrible shape if you if you say a few critical words, I, it's the tribalism. I guess some of it's an authentic fear of the Democrats, but of Biden, really. I mean, you know. so I don't know. I am a little bewildered by it, and a little, and very 
upset by it. And and again, I don't think it took superhuman. I respect Heidi Heitkamp. I don't mean, but I don't, it doesn't take superhuman courage to stand up to the guy. <laughs> um, you know, you you mentioned that the disappointment in in retired and also sitting politicians are in different situations. But you know, the 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 big thing before Trump getting the virus was Amy Coney Barrett and, and the Supreme Court just you know seeding this whole fight that was going to ensue. And I, I it's hard to tell how much of it has ensued because all you hear about is Trump having the virus right now. But but it, it was amazing how quickly uh republicans lindsey graham obviously most famous one moved on from uh their previous position uh and now we, we have to confirm the justice in now oh, with this 27 days but i think 27 before the election uh and there wasn't even sort of a a, a nod to well I, i've changed my position it was like this is this is what it is uh, and and screw the tape, screw you for thinking you remember. Uh, th- this is it, and uh, sort of a shameless quality. Totally, and I think you're you know you're absolutely right. There wasn't even a pretense of let's rationalize this by comparison with what we did in 2016 with an opposing Merrick Garland. But you know, it's a good instance. I mean, they could have said, you know what, I'm a conservative on Supreme Court matters. I'm I think Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, and I'm gonna probably vote for Amy Cody Barrett. And and I'm, you know, pleased that, uh, I'm sorry, obviously that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, people could say, but, um, you know, I'm pleased that we have a good nominee here. But that doesn't mean we should have Donald Trump for a second term. In a funny way, this gave people an out, don't you think, to kind of say, I'm fulfilling one of the big conservative dreams, more conservatives on the court. Uh, but I don't, even I, having fulfilled that dream, we can't afford to have this guy's president for the next four years. But no one, no one has said that. It's, so it doesn't, they didn't even take the out. Uh, as you say, they, they, they're totally, there's an unbelievable amount of hypocrisy and, and so forth. But they didn't even take the out this offered them. Uh, some was very, very few people <laughs> did to say, you know what, maybe this four years, we sort of made it through. We got some good court appointments if you're a conservative of that kind. So uh, let's pocket that. But God, we can't afford another four years. Now, if you talk to them privately, a lot of them say that, but then they're still on record supporting the president. And so what what, what good does it do to say it privately? And, and then he says so blatantly at, and brazenly, uh, yeah, I hope the election goes to the court and sort of the implication being, and Amy Coney Barrett, she's going to save me. Yeah, no, I mean, that is kind of... <laughs> and, and others, too, you know, other the degree to which I think Lindsey Graham may have said this, uh, you know, we uh, uh, this election is going to be resolved in the courts. What kind of thing is that to say in a democracy? Obviously, we understand that an extremely close election where there are genuine controversies about some votes, you know, good faith controversies on which people could differ, there will be court cases and there will be, and there always are. Incidentally, you can go to the most prosaic election for mayor somewhere and there's a controversy about whether a poll should be kept open an extra hour if people are in line or not. And there's a little court case, you know, I'm not, one shouldn't be, you know, uh, one understands that there's always going to be these controversies in the, on the margin, but that's very different from sort of uh, eagerly anticipating that the federal courts and the Supreme Court are going to basically decide the election. That is not what we want. It happens very rarely. It's happened. It happened in 2000, you could say, but that was uh, not a common instance. And it's a good thing for a country to have the election decided by the voters, not by the courts. But even there, the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has become, and I say this as someone who came to Washington in 1985 to work in the Reagan administration, has been a Republican ever since, I mean, before too, for about 10 years. Um, 
you know, the, the degree to which the Republican Party is just now hostile to voters. Well, you see what's happening in Texas, which I've looked into a little bit. Uh, uh, we're, we're an organization I'm involved in, Republicans for the Rule of Law, is going to play some role, perhaps there in, in the lawsuits, at least helping out the people who are suing to try to keep these voting places open so people can vote safely if they wish to vote, if they wish to live, deliver their absentee ballot in person. Totally uh, routine, really. Uh, they had it all set up. It was working fine. These are local government centers uh, the, that were functioning. You had to show your driver's ID when you had it in your ballot. It wasn't a, your voter's ID or usually your driver's license. It wasn't, you know, like a, some kind of fraudulent thing where people could dump thousands of ballots in. And Governor Abbott shuts it down. Why? Because in the places where there were lots of these satellite voting locations, ballot locations set up, he thought there'd be more Democrats voting there than Republicans. That's why. So you have a Republican Party that is just hostile to to the voters at this point. To put a finer point on it, one location to drop off the ballot in Harris County, which is where Houston is, 4.7 million people live there. Yeah, I mean, it's really nuts. I mean, when I first read the story, honestly, I mean, so to be fair, these are these are ballots that you would, absolutely, they could be mailed, but people don't trust the post serve, postal service, partly because of Trump and his appointee, of course, so they want to drop them off. So when I first read it, I thought, well, maybe that's reasonable because, you know, there is something about having just like a box, a mail, you know, a ballot, uh, uh, a drop-off box that's a little insecure and how are we sure and et cetera. But that's not the situation. When I looked into it, I don't know where you are. I'm in Fairfax County, Virginia. We have a big government center that's like an eight-story building. Uh, and then there are many regional offices of the government where you can go to transact normal government business. And there are buildings, you know, there are actual places with a, you know, a police guy, outside, a cop outside and, and people working inside who are government employees. And that's where people were going to drop off the ballot. As I say, they had to show their, their driver's license when they did so. It was written down by a clerk. It wasn't some haphazard, goofy, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, we're going to set up, you know, drop-offs everywhere. I'm not necessarily against that either if you have to do it in a pandemic, but that would be at least maybe a, you know, more defensible to say, gee, that makes me nervous from the point of view of voter fraud. This should, doesn't make anyone nervous from the point of view of voter fraud. There were zero allegations of voter fraud. And Governor Abbott just wants to shut down the opportunity of uh, people who he thinks will mostly vote Democratic from voting. So obviously, big connection to voter fraud is this idea that Trump may refuse to accept a defeat. And this is something that you know people sort of have been mentioning a little bit on and off, but here and there, even as as far back as four years ago. I mean, he, he said 2016 was going to be rigged. And then he dropped that when he won. So so it, it's not it's not new that he's saying this is going to be rigged. And, and I think a lot of people are shocked. I think I mean, my read on it is they're shocked, especially because he's the sitting president. Then he was a candidate. But it was still pretty shocking then when he said, oh, it's rigged. It's all rigged. The media is rigged and the election's going to be rigged. Uh, but then he won. So it wasn't rigged. But now he's saying it as a sitting president. Uh, how, how seriously do you take him? I take it pretty seriously. And uh, as you say, it's one thing for a candidate to say that at the end of the day, he couldn't do anything much. He could get people into the streets. He could cause a lot of civil turmoil. But, you know, he wasn't running the government. That's why people are rightly alarmed. He is running the government and he's got people in senior positions and in relevant agencies, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, maybe national intelligence, uh, who have shown a willingness to go, excuse me, 
pretty far in carrying out his wishes as opposed to upholding established laws and norms. I mean, it, it, so again, if you had a president who got a little bit, you know, off his rocker or was desperate to stay in power and was ranting and raving, and that's probably happened a little bit in U.S. history. I guess Nixon in the fa- final weeks and uh, was the summer of 1974, people, there are stories at least of him being a pretty, you know, uh, a little bit off off kilter. But again, we know, we know that people like Jim Schlesinger, the Secretary of Defense, and Henry Kissinger, uh, Secretary of State, um, you know, privately conferred and made some, you know, were pretty careful that Nixon couldn't just pick up the phone at the middle of the night and order something crazy. One has no, I, I hope that's happened a little bit, frankly, in the Trump administration. I, th- I have some confidence in the Defense Department. They're pretty careful and professional. I don't think they'll do something, you know, they would hesitate, to say the least, before doing something totally inappropriate. But I have much less confidence in some of these other agencies. So, and I don't have a heck of a lot of confidence anymore in the Republicans uh, in the Senate and, and, and in the House and Republican governors, you know, some of them, not all of them. But then again, this is where I come back to my the earlier point we discussed. I mean, it makes such a difference. It's, if it's one guy's in the White House screaming and yelling, it doesn't really matter. If the vice president of the United States says, no, of course we're going to obey the election returns. If the director of national intelligence says, I'm going to be watching for foreign interference and we're going to tell the truth about what happens. If the attorney general says we're going to uphold the rule of law, if the department of Homeland security says we're not going to send agents out into cities to, you know, just to, to, to follow, to, to pursue the political agenda of the president, then you'd feel, okay, it's not good for the country to have Donald Trump screaming and yelling in the white house from November 3rd to January 20th, but it's survivable. To the degree these parts of the federal government just go along with Trump, that is worrisome. To the degree that Mitch McConnell, so think of this, I mean, so let's assume the election's reasonably clear on election night. It makes a big difference, I think, if Mitch McConnell says at midnight on November 3rd, look, it looks like we lost. Uh, I, I hope you know, a couple of Senate races are still close. I hope we hold the Senate, whatever that situation is. But it looks like we've lost the presidency. Uh, we'll have an orderly transfer of powers. We always do. Uh, I hope we can work with President-elect Biden on some issues, blah, blah, blah. Makes a big difference if Governor DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, says, gee, we've counted the votes here in Florida. There's still a couple of percent to come in, but it looks pretty clear that President Trump, whom I supported, lost. And of course, that's going to be the result. And that's how Florida will, electors will vote in the Electoral College, because that's the way the system works. That would be one thing, right? That would contain the damage. But I, I think they would probably do the right thing, DeSantis and McConnell, but I, I wish I were more confident. And certainly there'll be a ton of people in Congress and at the state legislative level who will do whatever Trump says they should do. And there'll be a ton, unfortunately, there'll be news networks that, quote, news networks that, uh, that don't report the true, the, the real news, the facts. And there'll be people in the streets. And it could be really, it could be bad. I mean, I hope it's not too bad, but it, it could be bad. Well, I've had a lot of people on here who deal with national security, who watch terrorism threats, and uh, certain experts from CSIS who who tell me it's going to be much worse than we think. So I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hope you're right and, and not and not them, Bill Crystal. L- let me take you away from this for a moment because you know the show's called Talking Beats. Uh, I am a musician. I've been a cellist my whole life. I always ask people a little bit about what music they like because it's about the only thing. A, 
people have to fall back on right now that's that's sort of solid and there for them. So what do you like to listen to? Well, I mean, it's an honor to talk to you, an actual real musician, since I'm a very amateur uh, uh, lover of some classical music. And so I love Mozart more than anything. But So what's your favorite cello concerto? I have to ask every cellist I meet this, since there aren't that many of them. <laughs> it's funny you say that because there aren't that many cello concertos, but but they're all so good. The standard ones are so good. You know, I, I love all the classic pieces. I, I mean, the Dvorak cello concerto, I think, is sort of maybe the well, greatest concerto ever written. Well, <laughs> period. Okay, but... I'll go. I, I know Dvorak just a little. Yeah, I should go listen to that. What Mozart do you like the best? Oh, okay. So, so for me, nothing beats. A Mozart opera. I think Mozart is his very best when he's writing opera. The the four most famous ones, Merger Figaro, Don Giovanni, Cosivantute, and the Magic Flute. I think any of those four are up there with greatest pieces ever written. Okay, we're um, totally on the same page. No, I think the Mozart to Ponte operas are genuinely I mean, really great works of art. I mean, at the level of the greatest plays, the greatest novels, and so forth. Because the combination of the music, which, you know, I, you would have much better sense of ability to appreciate than I, but, you know, from my little studies of it, uh, you know, the complexity, the, the subtlety of the characterization through the music, the unbelievable ensembles, the finale of Act Two of Figaro, and so forth. And hey, it, you, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, the finale of Act Two of Figaro. It's, it is maybe the greatest, like, moment in, you know, in the history of music, right? I mean, <laughs> but, but also, De Ponte is a very intelligent, you know, guy, obviously, and, uh, and so there's a lot of subtlety in the, unlike in a lot of operas, frankly, there's a lot of, I think, subtlety in the characterization and in the drama itself. So those... For me, those Mozart to Ponte operas are really amazing. I could talk about that all day. And, and De Ponte was such an interesting guy, a Venetian Jew who founded the Italian department at Columbia. A fascinating life story. He is. No, I read it. By, and he's buried, I guess, somewhere in Queens or something, or Brooklyn. Yeah, it's unbelievable. He, he way outlived Mozart. Mozart he, he died comes at to America, 34. He comes yeah. the Italian language word. And then I think, if I recall correctly, he's like, He's trying to found like an opera company in New York in you know 1820. I think he doesn't die till the mid 1820s, maybe or late 1820s. And yeah, he he lives way longer than Mozart, well, who died in 1791. Was obviously, and um, you know, he could easily have lived. When you think about it, Mozart dies at age what is it, 36 or something, and Th 34, 34 in, in 1791, I think. So, you know, if he lives a normal life, so to speak, he's alive in 1820. But anyway, that's an interesting question. Well, how would his music have have moved, have changed, and compared to Beethoven and stuff? But anyway, um. DePonte is like you're know, going around America saying, "Hey, I knew Mozart. I wrote some operas with Mozart." You know, and I'm like, it being America in 1820, <laughs> people are like, "Well, what is that? What, really? That's very interesting." But go back to teach tutoring kids in Italian, and uh, I guess he didn't have much success as a uh, opera, you know, entrepreneur in New York in in the 1820s. No, he didn't, and he was literally giving Italian language lessons. And and you talk about a, a sort of a, a drop in prestige. Here he is writing the greatest operas of all time with Mozart, and then a couple decades later, he's he's teaching uh, verb conjugations uh, <laughs> in New York. That's a little different, but but and also, you know, by the way, I I have to say that the the piano concerti of Mozart. I always love playing those. Any of them, all of them. Uh, I particularly love sort of the the mid twenties. There's yeah. twenty seven, as you know, the the um, the D minor number twenty. Uh, they're, they're amazing, amazing I'm works. Curious. So if you're, I mean, how hard is Mozart as a you know as a cello as a member of the orchestra 
compared to later composers or, or earlier, I suppose. I've always wondered about that. Well, the cello was that lowly instrument, you know, early on it only had the, the sort of simplistic bass parts in unison with the bass. So, so technically, they're not particularly difficult, most of the Mozart pieces, but to make it really pristine, because you want every note to be pristine and, and to have that musical style, that's, that's the difficulty. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess, I guess the, in Mozart's time, the cello mostly is just playing the bass line with the with the bass or something, right? I mean, yeah, and yeah, and, and that that's why the the cello suites of Bach are so striking because they were written in the seventeen twenties and there was nothing like it. And suddenly you have these huge virtuoso pieces out of nowhere. And and they were pretty much buried until Pablo Casals, the great Catalan cellist, uh, sort of found them in an attic and started playing them in public. Yeah, that's an amazing. St- I mean, there's so much part now. They're so famous now, and. Uh, I don't know much about them, but I mean, yeah, they're so famous as part of the repertory and as uh, that that they were sort of obscure and really forgotten, right? Until a century ago, is is amazing. Yeah, totally forgotten, and, and now now they're the capstone. But but for the cello concerti, look, we have two Haydn's, which are great. We have Elgar, Dvorak, uh, we have a Sanson, uh, Schumann, great concerto. Hmm. You know, v- fiddle players, they they get ten times more pianists, they get. 30 times more repertoire, but we cellists were, were pretty lucky too. We also have the Brahms double, I forgot to say that. Yeah, it's a beautiful instrument. I mean, you got really, I mean, I think. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you feel there are enough contrary for you. I agree with them. The Mozart piano, I mean, of the non-opera, of the orchestral music, I guess I, I don't really know enough to honestly judge. And there's so much wonderful stuff if you just put anything on, but um, serenades and symphonies. But yeah, the the piano concerto seems special, and and we're kind of a, a breakthrough, right? I mean, the the distinctiveness of the piano part and all. I'm not sure that was true in the in preceding, uh, you know, the interplay between the piano and the orchestra. I'm not sure that's characters. That that's kind of a new thing with Mozart, isn't it? It's a new thing. It's a new sound, and I think the way he used the piano, uh, it's it's so idiomatic, but it's so fresh at the same time, is something just. I find remarkable and the the vitality and the originality every time I play it or hear it it's like this is the first time it's like that's the real sign of a masterpiece to me it's it's the first time you're hearing it it's so fresh it's so vital yeah that's well said that's well said uh, um bill crystal i i wish we had time to talk about music all day. Maybe we'll have a, a, a next time for this. Um, but uh, yeah. m- meanwhile, look, um, there's, there's, there's sort of the, the overlying or underlying or sort of elephant in the room question, which is, which is what happens after. And, and so real conservatives like you, uh, are you going to take it back? Are you going to take back the Republican Party? I, I'm sort of doubtful, but I think we should make a good faith effort probably because it'd be healthier for the country in my judgment if we had a what I would regard as a kind of healthy conservative party arguing for free markets and uh, maybe for a, a more internationalist and a stronger American foreign policy and, and for less government in certain areas and letting the private sector do more. And those are all you know reasonable things to debate. Um, it'd be better to have a party that stood for that than the Trumpy Republican Party, which is nativist and uh, somewhat authoritarian, but I, you know, I'm not that popular. The total collapse, uh, that 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 
confident. I'm not that popular either, actually, in the Republican Party. And I don't think that's going to be a great, a great, let's welcome back the never Trumpers. I don't think that'll be the case. Now, longer term, medium term, I think things could come, you know, could, could, could revert or probably go forward in a different way. It's a better way of putting it. And, you know, if Trump loses badly and if the policies look like they failed, then I think it's easier to make the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I think an, an intelligent conservative, I, I would think, I hope, um, is also rethought aspects of conservatism. A, you just do that anyway. I mean, things change over the decades. And B, Trump did show certain, the certain things that we thought were kind of confined to the fringes of the conservative movement and of, and of conservative politics. And I think we're mostly confined to the fringes. Buchanan was there, but he lost. And, you know, Ron, and uh, what's his name? Ron Paul lost. And, you know, so, uh, you know, the work that we, we had sort of beat back these challenges, if I can put it that way. But obviously with Trump, everything changed. So um, once, once he's been president, Hard to believe it's just going to go away. So I don't know. I'm very open-minded about the future. I mean, in terms of what it's going to look like. I don't know what the Democratic Party ends up looking like. I don't certainly don't know what the Republican Party looks like. Could you have a third party, centrist party, or at least centrist groupings to try to influence and work with people in both parties? I think it's a. It's going to be kind of a new world. I, I don't think that Trump ends up being this kind of weird parenthesis for years and just back to, you know, back to the way it was. I, that I don't buy, I guess. It just it doesn't seem to me that's the way history works. And so I think we're in uncharted waters beginning on January 21st. And and that's good in a way. And I think it's a chance for, because there are a lot of issues. It's not like the system was working so great before Trump. And there's a ton of things that have to be addressed and the way government works and the economy and et cetera. And so maybe there's an opportunity for some fresh thinking and fresh almost uh, organizing. It's interesting because I keep wondering to myself, is there going to be some Republican Party civil war? Is there going to be some big reckoning post-November 3rd if the Republicans lose really badly? It sounds like you're saying no or maybe. There will there'll be various reckonings. I, I'm just not super optimistic that the people I would prefer to win will win. I mean, there will certainly be, you know, I mean, in the simplest way, People like me can say whatever we want, but there'll be actual primaries in many, many states in a few in 2021, but then a lot in 2022 for the Senate, for the House, for governorships. And so what happens? At the end of the day, parties are who they elect, really. Uh, it's sort of that's kind of the living the way which a party manifests itself. And so I don't know. Pat Toomey is stepping down as the senator from Pennsylvania in 2022. Do they nominate a, uh, a traditional, if I can put it that way, Pennsylvania Republican type who... who has one character, or do they, Tom Ridge, the former governor, or Toomey himself type, uh, or do they nominate a Trumpy Republican? And, and that that will be replayed in a lot of different states. There'll be different results in different parts of the country, obviously. Uh, a lot will depend on sort of the legacy of Trump, how much the Trump forces try to defend Trumpism without Trump, what Trump himself does. It's not like he necessarily takes a vow of silence on January 20th. His kids, his family, his supporters, his media the media organizations that are friendly to him. There are just a ton of, you know, actors in this in this drama. That's one of the good things, really, about American politics. No one gets to sit here and say, this is how it's going to be. You know, there's just a million people uh, agitating and fighting and arguing, and, and so that's fine. And I, I think it's, you know, so I really don't know what happens. I, I can write different scenarios. I But I'm, I'm mildly pessimistic, I've got to say, about the short, medium-term Republican future. I'm a little more optimistic about the Democratic Party's future because, from my point of view, I, you know the Biden ascendancy is good as opposed to the left wing of the party, and 
you know, I think people think, well, he's 77 years old. And so that's temporary. There's some truth to that. But I think there are a lot of, for me, the one tell that's been one thing that's been one feature of the Democratic Party and of our politics that's been underreported is the the class of 2018, the, the, the new Democratic House members in particular. I think there were 40, 41 seats they flipped. And a few of them famous now, AOC and others, you know, on the left wing of the party. But here in Virginia, we have three new Democratic House members in 2018, and they're moderate Democrats. A couple of the one served in the military, one served in actually CIA, um, one's a kind of long-term state legislator. They're not anti-business. They're not anti-market. They're not anti-American leadership in the world. They're, they don't want to transform everything overnight. They do want more liberal policies than I probably want in, in a fair number of areas, but they're well within the mainstream. And so I, I think, you know, I think the future of the Democratic Party is an interesting question as well. And it does seem like a lot of people are being driven towards the center, which which it's hard to tell if that really exists, certainly not not formally right now. But but I, I do hear it from a lot of people on the left and a lot on the right that that they feel like like they're going more towards the center, but they just don't know quite where that is, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, very much so. And I think that's a really, you know, good way of putting it. And, and I, I think one thing, you know, people like me maybe can help with is, I don't know that we can start a new party, but there could be organizations that try to capture in maybe, maybe in particular issue areas. I don't know if you need to have a, the center organization, but could you have a centrist organization in foreign policy? Could you have one in economic policy? Could you have one in dealing with the new technology and social media? So maybe some of this is more, you know, specific to different issues and issue sets, but I think there's a pretty big market. I agree with that in in terms of let's break through this kind of hyper partisanship and hyper polarization. Bill Crystal, there's so much more to talk about. Uh, I'm hoping that sometime in the near future you'll come back and there will be more to cover and uh, we'll, we'll do this again. I would love to. This has really been a fun conversation for me. The highlight, of course, was Mozart, but the rest of it was good too. <laughs> well, there's always more Mozart to talk about. Don't worry, we can bring that up again too. Excellent. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.